All right, well, a good morning to all and a happy new year. It's not often that Christmas falls on a Sunday, but whenever it does, that also means New Year's falls on a Sunday. So we're here starting off the new year 2023, and however you would describe 2022, whether it was a, a good or bad year, Tristan can still find plenty of reasons to give thanks to God. We're told to be a perpetually thankful people. Like 1 Thessalonians 5.18 reminds us, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. As much as people try and find out God's hidden will, just stick with this. Here's his will for you. In everything, give thanks. Make that your New Year's resolution. Just the fact that we've been grace-gifted salvation in Christ Jesus should be enough to put a smile on your face each day. We should be a thankful people. One thing I'm thankful for is this church. Hope you are as well. The Lord has blessed us with many years of peace and spiritual growth. We can pray that continues for years to come. Part of that spiritual growth we know comes from the preaching of the word, which instructs us and edifies us and equips us. Normally here at Brian, right now, we're going through the gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings. That's going to take a while. We're in for the long haul with that one. So because of that, occasionally I like to take a little break in the preaching through Matthew. And often coinciding with the new year, I like to do some Q&A sermons during those breaks. And that is what we have in store for this morning. When you preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, you know, the preaching subject matter is dictated by the text. You, you don't get to pick and choose, just whatever's there, that's, that's what you're going to preach on. However, that might mean important subjects don't get addressed for quite some time. Some stones may be left unturned for years. But that's one reason I like doing these Q&A sermons every now and then. It just gives the congregation a chance to have some input on the preaching of the word, and just to overturn some of those stones that have grown moss and haven't been addressed for quite some time, to answer some of those nagging but important Bible questions you might have. It is God's will for us to be instructed and edified by his word. He wants us to know him thoroughly through his word. That involves asking all sorts of questions, finding clear biblical answers. It's what we aim to do with our time this morning. Our goal here is not just merely to increase in head knowledge, nor is it to have our, our ears tickled by fascinating questions. We're here to just genuinely get to know our God better through his word and get to know his will for our lives better as well as we answer some questions. When biblical questions come up about God or his will or, or so on and so forth, we need to answer them. So let's see if we can do that some morning, shed some light on some of the Bible questions you all submitted over the past few weeks quite a few. So let's get started. The first one is this. These will be all over the map, but that's part of the fun of it anyway. First question was this. Is it a sin for Christian parents to tell their children that Santa Claus is real and to give their kids gifts from him? Is it a sin for Christians to tell their children that Santa Claus is real? So I was a Christian, uh, Christmas question in the mix, so I'll just throw it in there because I, I usually do these around New Year's anyway. But I bet some of you have never questioned that before, but it is relevant. It's a fair game question. A 2015 poll found that 7 in 10 American households with children 10 or under had at least one child believing in Santa that he was really real. As young Christians get married, start having kids, they're, they're faced with this dilemma like, so what are we going to do about Santa? Are we going to play this game? Are we going to tell our kids he's real? Now, for some of you, I imagine it's a no-brainer. You would say No. But as you know, Santa is a huge part of our American Christmas tradition, and some Christians, they were just raised heavily in that tradition. So when they become parents, 
this extremely powerful force starts to work called nostalgia. It's him. It's just, it's part of the magic, the wonder of Christmas to have so many warm feelings and fond memories of Christmas time around Santa. To them, that group, it's almost sacrilegious to ask the question, is it sinful to tell your children Santa is real? But like I said, it is a fair question, and you should never be beyond questioning your actions, especially when they're just based on tradition. Now, first off, let's clarify, we're not talking about exposing your kids to the cultural myth of Santa. I mean, Santa is ubiquitous Christmas time, can't even go to the market without seeing Santa everywhere. So there's nothing wrong with informing your kids about the myth of Santa. We're talking about whether it's right to just play along and tell your kids that Santa is real. And by real, we mean like really real, as real as you are, as real as trees are, as God is, as the sun is, like that real. This charade would involve communicating that the whole Santa mythology to your kids as if they're statements of fact And so what are some of those quote-unquote facts that you're telling them? Santa lives at the North Pole, that he is an army of elves, that he flies around in a magical sleigh, that he delivers presents to all children in just one night, and so on. So should Christians teach all of this to their children as if it's true, that's really real, and communicating this as fact to them, even if it's just for a few years of their childhood? Well, when you put it like this, you should start to feel the rub against Lying, I mean, your, your conscience should start lighting up and saying, that kind of sounds like lying. They're like, how is that not lying? And I trust I don't need to labor the point that lying is sinful. It should be obvious, Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Ephesians four twenty five. therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you to his neighbor. You know, God is God of truth. The spirit is called the spirit of truth. The Son is the way, the truth, and the life. Meanwhile, Satan is the father of lies. We know whom we are to imitate. Truth and honesty are to be paramount Christian virtues. This is part of our new identity as Christ followers to be truthful in all that we say and do. Like radically truthful, way different than the world, truthful. Which means even for Christians, white lies are unacceptable. The, the, the culture, society is accepted lying. I have no really problem with lying. It gets you ahead. As long as no one gets hurt seems to be the rubric. Like, that's the standard. As long as no one gets hurt, white lie can't hurt anybody. That's just how they justify deception. But not to God, not to Scripture. It's rather black and white. We have to remember as Christians, we, we just live by a different standard. Our standard is what is consistent with the nature and the will of God. And that's what we are to reflect and God is a God of pure truth, no error. And so by this standard, this high standard of truthfulness to which we are called to, I can't really see how parents can teach their kids that Santa is really real, like full in, he's really real without succumbing to the sin of lying. And really, when you think about it, the the Santa game, I grew up on it, so I was raised in that, and I didn't have a Christian home, but my... uh, The whole Santa game, it's like a multi-layered, multi-year deception ruse. Like, you're really going in on it. There's a lot of deception involved. And some might say, like, it's not a malicious lie. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's just for a little fun. While it may be fun in a sense to some, none of these fly as biblical exceptions to deceit. I don't see any exception clauses here in Scripture about if it's fun. 
It's just a way to kind of soft pedal deception in your mind. It, again, we're just called to a different standard. That means we won't be able to do everything our culture does. Others might argue that telling kids about Santa, it's, it's no different than reading fantasy stories to them or encouraging their imaginative play where they're pretending they're a princess or a ninja or something like that. But there is a difference, namely that when you read your kids' Chronicles of Narnia, you're not telling them this is real or historical. Just the opposite. You're telling them this does not correspond to reality. This is fantasy, fiction. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus made up parables, stories that weren't true but had a point. That's not wrong. But when you present the Santa myth as fact to your child, like this is really real, that is lying. But can I also add, though, how really incredibly unwise and unprofitable it is from a Christian perspective to, to play this game, to tell your kids Santa is really real. Because first, it spawns theological confusion about God. The myth of Santa, the more you think about it, it attributes to him certain divine characteristics. And it just muddies the waters of how our kids think about the real God with his real divine attributes. Because Santa is essentially omniscient, as you know, like he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been good or bad. I mean, he has omniscience. He can visit all children of the world in one night as if he's omnipresent. Or if some have joked, omnipresence. It's a dad joke for you. But worse yet, you know, Santa's message is just moralism. It's just be good for goodness sake. If you want presence, if you want rewards, just be good. This is all enhanced by the more recent tradition of Elf on the Shelf, which is just really weird to me. But apparently these, are like, I looked at it, these are like Santa's spies. So apparently he's running like a surveillance state now, like figuring out what people are doing. But you can see all this, all this messaging of just, just be good, just, just be good. It serves to confuse how our children think about very serious matters, including the nature of the true unseen God and how we gain his favor which is not by being good, it's by his grace. The second reason playing the Santa game is so unwise is that it risks breaking a parental trust. I mean, children have this implicit level of trust that Jesus praises. You have faith of a child, faith like a child. They have this implicit level of believing the unseen, the unbelievable. And that can lead them to know and really trust God at a young age. And that's precious. But they fully rely on their parents to guard and guide that trust. So, and there's been plenty of testimonies like this. You go all in on the Santa myth that it's real. They eventually learn the truth the hard way. And that trust gets diminished. There's, there's going to be some trouble there. If they find out that you lied to them about this unseen demigod named Santa, why should they believe you're not lying to them about the real God who is also unseen? The third reason pretending Santa is real, it's so foolish, is that it obscures the reality of Christ. Look, I, I really get the power of nostalgia, but if, if you're a Christian parent, it's like, you are Christian adults now. So why would you want to center the warmth and the magic of Christmas around Santa and not Christ? Like, why would you want to divert your kid's attention toward a mythological figure and away from the real Lord who has given us that the greatest gift of eternal life his own sacrificial death and resurrection. Why would you substitute a cheap myth for the greatest true story ever told? You put it like that, it's like, why would you do this? Now, at a bare minimum, 
it would be incredibly unprofitable from a Christian perspective to, to tell your kids Santa is really real. And on top of all that, I've yet to hear some legitimate like biblical case or exception that this justifies lying. Uh, we know that's everywhere just prohibited in Scripture in a rather black and white manner. Now, I do want to clarify, this does not mean you have to boycott all things Santa-related. You don't. Like, as Christians, you have liberty to partake in the traditions of your culture. So if, if you fully communicate to your kids, like, Santa's not real, it's just a myth of our culture, but you want to go take your kids to take a picture with the mall Santa for the sake of nostalgia, you have liberty to do so. You have to navigate that Christian liberties issue on your own. It's a separate issue. You have freedom there if you so choose. But I just don't see the angle where you can just, you're committing to the lie that Santa is real with your kids. Now to clarify even more, this response is not legalism. Legalism is where you go beyond what scripture says to define right and wrong, to define sin. But but we're not doing that here. This is not the case. This is an issue of applying what the Bible very clearly says all over about lying, which we're just, we, we need to take seriously. Again, we're called to be a radically truthful people. We, we will, that will force us to be just different from the world. Even things from our childhood will just will we'll now have to be different uh, in ways, things we can't do that our culture does. But that's okay. That said, I do want to add, beware becoming legalistic when dealing with other fellow believers who have told their kids that Santa is real. This person asks a follow-up question. Basically, you know, how do you deal with other Christian parents who tell their kids Santa is real. This is mostly a parenting issue. Like, I'm definitely not going to tell my kids to lie and play along just so that they don't blow your cover. Like, I'm not going to put all that pressure on my kids to play the game and lie for the sake of your cover. That's a lot of pressure to put on kids. But I'm also not going to lead them to be obnoxious and just go, like, shove the truth in people's faces. Like, let's just leave it to the parents. This is an issue that I think calls for, like, tons of grace and patience. I don't think there's any Christian parents out there that they're telling their kids Santa as real, as some sort of high-handed rebellion against God, as if they're reveling in the sin of lying. I've never seen that. I just think most, just they get caught up in tradition, and they just never stop to question their actions. It's just what they've done, and they don't even think twice about it. When dealing with a fellow brother or sister, you always want to follow the counsel of 1 Thessalonians 5.14, which tells us, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. These parents, they're, they're not being unruly. This is not, I don't think, high-handed rebellion. They don't need harsh rebuke. They're more in that category of weak, which just means that they don't know better. They've never, probably never stopped to even think about this issue from a biblical perspective. So what to do? What should you do? You come alongside them. You offer help, biblical instruction, thoughtful, gracious challenge all the while being extremely patient. You want to guard against the real threat of legalism here, which is where you're, you're thumbing your nose against a weaker brother or sister who, who does something you, you don't approve. Maybe you encounter a Christian family and then they're, they're playing the Santa game. But be gracious, be patient, believe the best, approach them with gentleness if you feel so inclined as they're in the process of maturing. We all are. This issue, it's hard for some people. And that just, it comes down to the power of tradition. It is a powerful force. It's not inherently wrong so long as it does not overturn the word of God. I think that just goes to show you, though, why wouldn't it be? It would be far better, uh, far better rather, to create 
brand new traditions centered on Christ. Embed those deeply into the hearts of your kids during their youth, that they'll grow up with those, they'll pass those up in a way that just magnifies God and his son Christ. I think is the better way. All right, we're going to leave it there. Move on to question number two. Totally shifting directions here. Theological question. Question two, what is the difference between progressive and positional sanctification? What is the difference between progressive and positional sanctification? Like I said, these questions are all over the map, so don't think, look for like a theme here. And some require longer answers, some shorter. This, we can be a little more straightforward. Now, first off, what is sanctification? In general, the term for sanctification in the New Testament is closely tied to holiness. Holiness itself is all about separation. God is holy, meaning he's he's perfectly set apart from sin and impurity, and he wants the same for us. He tells us, you are to be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. He wants us to be set apart, sanctified unto him in righteousness. The problem with this is that we are not holy. None of us. We are unholy. We're all defiled in sin. We are due to be separated from God eternally. But there is good news that God, by his grace, can make us holy. He can give us what we need. And so this first brings us to what you can call positional sanctification. And that's the same thing as justification. It's, it's akin to justification. This is an act of God's grace through the agency of faith in Christ, where at the moment of conversion, he sets you apart. He justifies the sinner. This is how we are made right with God. In this divine act, God sanctifies us entirely, which means he's totally setting us apart unto him. He declares us to be set apart from sin's penalty and given over to Christ. This is where in a moment, Of that conversion, you're rescued from the domain of darkness. You're transferred to the kingdom of his son. This is positional sanctification. This is how all Christians can legitimately be called saints. And the word saints literally means holy ones. And contrary to Catholicism, it's not for a special group. The New Testament refers to every single genuine believer as a saint, a holy one. It's how Paul can say to the Corinthians, where if you know the Corinthian church, they didn't act super holy. But he says to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, greetings. And he greets them as saints, saints by calling. They've been sanctified. Later in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he lists, gives a list of unrighteous deeds. But then he adds in verse 11, such were some of you. But he says you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There he says to them, you were sanctified. That's an aorist passive in the Greek. He's referring to sanctification as a past act. It's where God declares us holy in Christ. So that is positional sanctification. Again, it's the same thing as justification, more or less. Now, the second aspect of this term sanctification is called progressive sanctification. Called that because it's meant to progress throughout life. It grows 
throughout life. In Christ, we have this new perfect position of holiness in the eye of God. But Scripture is also clear, and we don't need convincing that practically in how we live, we are not perfectly holy. He may have, he may have declared us to be holy in Christ, but we don't always act perfectly holy. We very much continue to struggle against sin in this life. Now, progressive sanctification then is the work of God, of the Spirit, and of us, whereby Christians practically become holier in life, where their conduct matches their calling, where they walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Hebrews twelve fourteen tells us, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. First Thessalonians four three says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now it's something we're being told to pursue, to do, to achieve. So positional sanctification, that's where we are made holy. We're called holy at salvation. Progressive sanctification is where we are then told to walk, to live in a manner worthy of our calling, to, to grow throughout life in, in Christ-likeness. So overall, it's, it's, it's a simple distinction, but it is a vital one. You don't want to mix these two up. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, associates justification with progressive sanctification, meaning how are we made right with God? It is by our striving, our works, our effort, our, our walking, our living. But we need not lose the true gospel of grace that sinners are made right with God one way and one way only, just by grace through faith in Christ alone. We're given the holiness, the righteousness we need. We just read Philippians 3, 9 this morning. We're given the righteousness we need by faith. Uh, his own righteousness given to us. That's how we're made right with God. But thereafter, let us not forget to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. All right, question three. This is a, an exegetical question, a single verse. Hebrews twelve sixteen. It says, in Hebrews 12, 16, was Esau considered immoral and godless because he sold his birthright? And if so, how was the selling of his birthright connected to these two attributes? It's, it's a question of a single verse. Hebrews 12, 16, why, why was Esau called immoral and godless? Was it because he sold his birthright? And we just quoted Hebrews 12, 14. This one, a couple of verses later, 12, 16. If you want to see this yourself, you can open your Bible to Hebrews 12. A lot of these questions I'm bouncing around, but this one you can plant in Hebrews chapter 12. Sometimes people have theological questions, other times exegetical, meaning they just want to know, like, what does a single verse mean or a passage? And that's what we have here. A specific but, but good question on the meaning of Hebrews 12, 16. So I'm going to read Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, give you a little, little bit of the context. Hebrews 12, verse 15. He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, and that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So verse 16, Esau is the subject. There's two adjectives describing him, immoral and godless. 
Then the second half of the verse tells us what he did. He sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now, real quick, just to answer the question, Esau is not being called immoral and godless because he sold his birthright. He already was immoral and godless. That's why he sold his birthright. I want to explain that to you, and we can see there's, there's a lesson to be learned here, just to, to flesh this out a little bit. These two terms. So you have the term for moral, which uh, usually refers to sexual morality, but it can refer to just immoral, immorality in general, an impure or unclean person in general. That's probably the, the case here. There's no sense of Esau being sexually immoral. You have this term godless, which is a very interesting term. It's really the term that's the opposite of the word for sacred. So this is the word for profane. It speaks of a person who is void of religion or piety, who has no affinity to God. And so put together, Esau is being called unclean and profane. The point is he was a deeply irreligious man. There there was not a spiritual bone in his body. He had no regard for God. That depiction fits the bill of Esau from the Old Testament. You think of the, the heritage Esau squandered. You recall that God earlier had chosen Abraham, called him to be a father of a great nation. God promised Abraham land as an inheritance, numerous descendants, and a personal blessing. And these promises to Abraham would then pass down to and through his descendants. And God affirms this in Genesis 17 verses 6 through 8. He tells them that the covenant, the blessings, the promises would all pass down to Abraham's firstborn. It's his birthright. I mean, talk about a birthright and a, a heritage. In that culture, being the firstborn, man, you're already incredibly privileged. You, you are the heir. You get the lion's share of your father's estate. But here, Abraham's firstborn, through Sarah, would gain a lot more than just Abraham's earthly riches. He was going to inherit God's covenant, his special blessing. And that promise did indeed pass down from Abraham to Isaac. Genesis seventeen nineteen says, God says to them, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So the promise now is going from Abraham to Isaac. Now, who is next in line after that for this most special birthright? It was the next firstborn, Isaac's firstborn. That would be Esau. You know how God in the Old Testament, he often describes himself to Israel like, I am the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you realize, in a sense, it should have been, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That's what it, in a sense, should have been. Esau was the firstborn of Isaac. The birthright was his. To him belong the inheritance, the covenant, the promises. All of that should have passed down through his line. I mean, just what what an incredible privilege. Except he didn't want it. He didn't care about it. He despised it. That's because he was a godless man. There's no evidence throughout Genesis that Esau was a pious man, that he feared God. No evidence. To the contrary, he had no regard for his father's God or or God's word, God's promises. This fact comes later in Genesis chapter 25. Tells us about one day Esau, who was a hunter, comes in from the field. He obviously didn't catch anything. 
And he's, he's famished, he's starving. Meanwhile, his brother Jacob has just made a stew, some, some dinner. And it says this, I'll read it for you, Genesis 25, 30 through 34. It says, Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. That's how he got his, many think he, how he uh, got his nickname red. He just called it the red stuff. He said, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You can tell from the last verse, he was not literally about to die. Esau. He was not starving to death. He's he really hungry. He's famished. But he's not about to actually die. He gets a meal and he just goes on his way. It's not like he had to be nursed back to health here. He's exaggerating. But he just, he really wanted some of Jacob's food. And Jacob, in turn, in a sly way, demands his birthright for it. And just consider the trade. On the one hand, it's like bread and a little soup. On the other hand, so it's not only your father's riches and the lion's share of his estate, but it's also your father's God's promises, his covenant, his blessing, his special blessing. That is not an equal trade. If you value spiritual things, if you believe in God. But Esau didn't. He despised his birthright. All this that surely was told to him was of no value in his eyes. He didn't care about it. Didn't believe it. He was godless. He was profane. Just without even thinking twice. He swore it away. And so you should see the offense here. He was showing contempt, not just for his father's riches, but for his father's God and for God's covenant, for God's promises, for God's blessing. Jacob, in contrast, you know, you read Genesis, he's not a super godly young man. He was deceitful. He was a liar. And later he went about gaining Esau's blessing and the full birthright through deception by deceiving Isaac when he was near blind, if you recall that story. He gets the birthright the wrong way, but there is one difference why Jacob does stand out. It's for faith. I mean, he, despite his sin, he really believed in God. He really valued this birthright. He wanted it. He wanted the blessing. He wanted God's blessing. And he got it, not without discipline, but he got it. The blessing and the promises did indeed not pass to the firstborn, Esau, but to the second, Jacob. And later, when Isaac passed his blessing on to Jacob, Esau all of a sudden regretted his actions, wanted it back, but it was too late. Couldn't be reversed. He was rejected. There's more to this whole account, but this suffices for now. You go back to Hebrews 12, 16, and what you have here, the author of Hebrews, is, is a cautionary tale. We're being told... Don't be like Esau, who for on the one hand, he valued instant fleshly gratification over and against lasting spiritual blessing. Don't make that trade. But also more, more deeply, don't, don't despise God and his promises. Don't turn your back on your God. Don't despise his good promises given to you. There's really the heart of this is a warning against falling away from God in hardness of heart which you might know that's a, th- a thread that runs all throughout Hebrews. You might not be getting what you want in life. You're a Christian, but things aren't working out for you the way you want. It might tempt you to believe this, this God is not good. 
He's not good to you. He's not worthy. But don't forget or despise what he has given you. You've inherited his grace gift. You've inherited a better covenant, better promises in Christ. So as the author says in chapter 10, verse 29, like don't trample underfoot the son of God. Don't, don't take for granted what he has given you. And yet maybe you have failing health and you're bankrupt, but even still, if you have Christ, you're, you've inherited every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Don't despise that. Don't curse God because you don't have it all in this life. Don't scorn your new birth birthright. You have forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ. And so no matter what, you had better cherish and hold on to those privileges. Don't fall away. It's a message of Hebrews. Because if you do, you just might find yourself so hardened that there's no, room, no more room for repentance. There's no place for it. So beware being like Esau. Now, hey, since we're in the book of Hebrews, decided to throw in this question, question number four. In a sense related, interesting question. Number four, who wrote Hebrews? Question as old as time. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? And I figured like our women's ministry right now is going through, I think, a two-year study through, inductive study through the book of Hebrews. I'm sure all of them would be interested and appreciate this question. So the question, who wrote Hebrews? The answer here is Luke. Okay, question five. Moving on. Uh, (laughs) I'm kidding. Of course, Hebrews is notorious in the New Testament because the author is not identified and it, it leaves us to wonder who wrote it. It's been asked since the very beginning because the text itself, the manuscript never came with an author attached to it. So it's been asked for a long time, but it really does not have an easy answer. The natural answer would be the Apostle Paul. That's why it's included at the end of the Pauline epistles and the organization of the New Testament. Uh, that, that was the assumption of the early church and the Eastern church. All They all believed it was and assumed it was written by Paul. It bears an affinity to Paul's letters. The theology is the same. And the author shows uh, a relationship with Timothy in chapter 13, verse 23. He, he was a traveling companion with Timothy, and so that makes us think of Paul. But there are several pretty large hurdles against Pauline authorship. That one, there, there's no personal greeting. Chapter 1 There's no salutation. There's no personal greeting. That's something Paul did in every one of his letters. It would be very uncustomary for Paul to start a letter without a greeting. And two, the the Greek style and the vocabulary, they're noticeably higher than Paul's epistles. Hebrews gives us uh, the finest Greek in the New Testament by style. Three, whenever Paul quotes the Old Testament in his letters, He always refers to what's called the Masoretic text, just like the original Hebrew. But the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament extensively, but from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Again, that would be uncustomary for Paul to do that. Maybe the most significant point against Paul's authorship is found in chapter 2, verse 3. And so you're in Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews 2, 3. The author is is referring to the, the gospel, that the message of salvation He says this, chapter 2, verse 3, you know, for if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable. And verse 2, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he's talking about salvation. Then he says this, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. 
So you see in that verse, three parties are mentioned. First is the Lord. He's the source of the gospel message, obviously. Second are those who heard. These are the apostles. These are the eyewitnesses of the Lord. They receive the message directly from the Lord. And that third group are those who receive the gospel message from the apostles. He says, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So you can see how the author puts himself in that third group. He's not claiming to be an eyewitness. He's not claiming to be among those who heard the Lord, but rather he learned this message from those who heard the apostles, as verse 4 affirms. The thing is, though, Paul would never do that. In all of his other letters, he adamantly puts himself in that second group. He was among those who heard. He saw the risen Lord. He was an eyewitness. He he, uh, was a firsthand uh, witness of the gospel message. He claims to have received his gospel message from the Lord directly, not from the other apostles, as he says in the book of Galatians. So this is not how Paul would ever describe himself. He always does the opposite. And so because of this and more, it's, it's most unlikely that Hebrews was written by Paul. And if not Paul, then of course the question is, who else? Some throughout church history have suggested Barnabas, or Apollos, or Silas. We know the author was a master of Greek. He's a traveling companion of Timothy. And he came to salvation out of Judaism. We know a few things. He seems to like have taken the mantle of Paul. There's a lot of, there are similarities. This is why others have claimed it would be Luke, who does fit the bill as a really close associate with Paul and Timothy. And there are several stylistic similarities between uh, Luke Acts and Hebrews, you know, Luke Acts written by Luke. The Greek shows a lot of similarities. It may be something in the middle. One theory is that this was originally a sermon preached by Paul, later put to pen by Luke. And no one really knows. I, I typically favor that theory, but it's zero dogmatic about it, just a theory. Ultimately, the authorship of Hebrews remains a mystery. As the church father Origen said, quote, who wrote the epistle of Hebrews in truth? Only God knows, end quote. If they, they, they didn't know, they couldn't figure it out that close to its authorship, we're not going to figure it out either. The authorship, simply not preserved for us, so it's nothing we can be dogmatic about. But it's important to remember that Hebrews clearly bears apostolic authority. Its canonicity is not in question. And in the end, while God used human authors with individual styles to write the Bible, we know that all scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, with that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, 2 Peter 1.21. And so the ultimate author is God the Spirit, and he gives us the greatest treatise on the supremacy of Christ in all of scripture, as we all should very much cherish this book of Hebrews as it comes to us from the Lord. All right, question five here. We'll do one more. Being a communion Sunday, we can't go on too long. So one more question here. Another exegetical question. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Now, what does this mean? So you can go ahead and flip over to 1 John. You're close enough. And Hebrews, go over to 1 John. It's a question of basically what does 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 mean when it says Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Now, sitting in the background of this question, I know to be a discussion on the extent 
of the atonement. And this is one of the main verses in that discussion. Now, I'm not going to fully wade into those deep waters here in this little Q&A, but a brief setup is necessary. Now, some people hold to what's called to uh, unlimited atonement, meaning that they believe Jesus died for all people without exception. Others hold to what's called a limited atonement, meaning Christ's atoning work on the cross was for the elect only. They have different labels, but that's, that's the gist of it. One thing to keep in mind is that you know, both sides of this ancient debate, the question is, for whom did Jesus die? Both sides of this very old debate end up limiting the atonement one way or another. Those who hold to an unlimited atonement view, they make the claim that Jesus died for all people. But you really have to stop and ask the question, like, what do you mean by died for? That's generic. Like, what are you actually saying when, you're, when you say he died for all people? Do you mean like he actually atoned for everyone ever? That he actually put away the sin of all people on the cross? Are you saying that? Because if so, we would wonder, like, how could God then condemn them? The hell should be empty. That, that would lead to universalism. Universalists are the only truly consistent unlimited atonement believers. But like we should know it's biblically crystal clear that not all people are saved in the end. And so that means if you're saying Jesus died for all people, well, I guess that death wasn't like totally effective. It didn't actually save all people. Indeed, unlimited atonement proponents are forced to limit the efficacy of the atonement. They believe the atonement was unlimited in extent So yeah, it was for all people without exception, but they're forced to sacrifice the power of the atonement. That Christ's atonement did not actually secure the salvation of all people, or really anyone for that matter. Rather, Jesus died to make people savable. It was not an actual atonement. It was not a definite atonement. It was more of a provisional atonement. On the other side, the limited atonement view sees Scripture as teaching that the extent of the atonement was indeed limited to the elect, but they uphold the power and the efficacy of the atonement. In other words, all those for whom Jesus died, they will be saved 100%. None will be lost among the bride for which Jesus came and died for. And so they, they believe that Jesus accomplished an actual, definite, effective atonement on the cross. So that little bit of background is helpful for coming to a verse like 1 John 2, verse 2, because like I said, this is a lightning rod verse in that debate. It's one of the favorite verses proponents of an unlimited atonement point to to support their view, but it actually has some thorns that betray their view. So let's let's look at it. 1 John 2, verse 2. Speaking of Christ, John says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And look, the main reason people support an unlimited atonement, because you got verses in the Bible that use universal language in connection with Christ's death, like this one. It seems, seems to be what it's saying. So, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And people then just assume world must refer to all people without exception. So, like, case closed. This is kind of obvious. But it's, it's really not so cut and dry because every single word 
in existence has a range of meaning. And you, you've got to prove that world, for example, refers to all people without existence. It's easy to say that, but you have to show it. And the only proof will come in the context. The context is how we determine the meaning of words. You know, the fact of the matter is, you know, that word world, for example, has a pretty vast range of meaning in Greek. And only one of those meanings refers to all people ever. The, world, the word world or cosmos in the Greek, it can refer to all people without distinction. It can refer to mankind in general. It can refer to mankind in rebellion against God and so on. There's, I think, over a dozen meanings for the word world in Greek. Case in point, John 12, 19. The Pharisees say that the whole world has gone after Jesus. Now, that clearly does not mean all people without exception, like everybody on the planet, in reality, is it's actually a pretty small percentage of people who are going after Jesus, but it's within the range of meaning to use it in an exaggerated sense. We get that. So, like, it's not enough to simply rattle off a list of verses with seemingly universal language. You've got to study them one by one in their context. That is the right way to build theology, is it not? So we go one by one. And when you actually do that, I would argue that the universal language and scripture is meant to show that Jesus died for all people without distinction, not all people without exception. Meaning he died for all sorts of people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, male and fe- uh, female. He died for people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. All right, so now looking at verse 2. The end of verse 2 does indeed use universal language in connection with the atonement. That Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the whole world. So that might seem to support an unlimited atonement as if Jesus died for all people without exception. But consider what this verse is saying. It does not vaguely say Jesus died for the whole world. This verse is such a big deal because it uses a very specific atonement term. Propitiation. He made propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Now we're getting very specific. Do you know what propitiation means? It's a dimension of the atonement referring to the satisfaction of God's wrath toward the guilt of our sin. On the cross, we picture Jesus as drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. He drank the whole cup. That cup was for us. We were under the wrath of God because of our sins. But in our place, as a perfect Substitute sacrifice, he drank the cup to the full. He he bore all of God's holy and just wrath toward our sins on the cross. And he exhausted it all. He drank the whole cup, so to speak. Now you realize, if Jesus did that for all people who ever lived without exception, it's a legitimate question. How could God send anyone to hell? Hell is, is the place you go to suffer the wrath of God. It's the place of that punishment for the sin. So, what wrath is left? If he's ex- emptied wrath, if he's exhausted God's wrath, that's what the word propitiation means. How could God condemn anyone? The whole point is there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because of that, because of propitiation. How would this not lead to universalism? The only way out of this dilemma while upholding that unlimited atonement is to limit the meaning of propitiation. You have to believe that Jesus made a, a potential or a provisional propitiation of God's wrath on the cross. And with this, yes, you've gained the ability to say that Jesus died for all people without exception, but you've also robbed the atonement of its power. 
its effectiveness. And personally, I've, there's brothers on both sides of this debate. I've just never found that view convincing. Mostly because I don't see this term for propitiation ever being used in reference to Christ's death like that. You know, when he said, it is finished, as we sang this morning, it is finished, he meant it. I believe he actually appeased God's wrath on the cross for all those who would believe in him. And furthermore, the context of this very passage gives us the clarity we seek. You can't skip verse 1. Go back to verse 1. He starts off by saying, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now notice, first off, you already have an example of universal language being limited. He uses this universal term in verse 1, anyone, if anyone sins. But it's clearly being limited. His audience is us, if any one of us sins. Anyone of believers. He's talking to his little children, believers. Clearly his audience. He's already limiting that term. He's talking about any one of us. But more importantly, connected to that is the fact of Christ's advocacy, his intercession, his role as mediator. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This word advocate, paraclete, helper in Christ. It's like he's our defense attorney before God the Father. Because we still sin. But verse 1 says, if anyone sins, and we do. Jesus, the righteous, he's pictured as uh, interceding, mediating. The one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. He's mediating to the Father on our behalf. Arguing that despite our ongoing sin, we are still justified. There's, there's no more penalty. He's, he points to his hands, you might say. That the, the scars in his hands, like, well, I've already paid for them. Even as we sin. He's interceding on our behalf. So now here's the big question. For whom is Jesus advocating? For whom is Jesus interceding? For whom is he mediating up there at the right hand of the Father? And you realize that is the same question as for whom did Jesus die? After his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. There, according to the book of Hebrews we just looked at, he serves as our great high priest, right? And every high priest has two jobs, to make sacrifice and to make intercession. And the scope of that work is the same. The high priest intercedes or mediates for the same people for which he sacrifices. And so, well then, ask, for whom does Jesus advocate? For whom is he mediating? In this verse, verse 1, it's crystal clear. It's for us. We have an advocate. Let's say the world has an advocate. We have the advocate before God. He's high priest over the church, his body, his bride, his flock, his branches. The whole point of verse 1 is to encourage believers when they fall into sin. Not to excuse sin. We never excuse sin, but look, we're still sinners. And we still derive encouragement that despite our ongoing sin, we're not separated from God because Jesus is our advocate. He's interceding for us. And he can do so precisely because he already made propitiation for our sins. And so just like Romans 8, 1 says, there's, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's, there's no more. It's all gone. And so just as Jesus does not advocate for all people without exception, we already can expect verse 2 to teach that Jesus does not make propitiation for all people without exception. Look, verse 2, nothing demands that we have to take the word world to refer to all people without exception. 
And I think we've shown theologically and contextually that that just can't be the case. So instead, when John says Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the whole world, it can just as easily be taken to mean all people without distinction, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It could just as easily be taken to refer to just the sphere of mankind in general. And I think apart from the clear heresy of universalism, it's just the only consistent interpretation of this text. Jesus died for all people without distinction. He did make propitiation for the whole world in a general sense, not all people without exception, because then all people without exception would be saved. But we can't be reminded, though, that, that the extent of the atonement debate It's a long debate, and it should be a friendly in-house debate among fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're contending for the truth. We're seeking to know with greater accuracy just the wonder of the Lord's salvation. I don't believe that's an issue that should divide us, although we still want to pursue and seek truth at all times. That said, though, I think it's fitting for us now to conclude as we began, which should be on a note of thanksgiving. As we even consider this verse, we're reminded that the Lord Jesus, the righteous one, has come. And he came to save us from the wrath to come by bearing that wrath in our place. I mean, this, this great high priest became the offering for sin. He was both the priest and the offering, dying once for all as a perfect substitute sacrifice for our sins. And it really was finished. He paid our pray, uh, place, our debt in full. And so now he's the only Savior we need. Beyond that, risen and ascended, he's our constant advocate, our intercessor, our mediator, guaranteeing, securing our salvation and God's favor upon us. All this should remind us how richly blessed we are in Christ. And we have quite the new birth, birthright in Christ. By our new birth, this is all that we have. We have all the riches of Christ who's actively working on our behalf right now. That should encourage you. We've been reminded of several gospel truths this morning. They should at the very least inspire you to thanksgiving, to a continual thanksgiving, not just today on New Year's Day, but each day of this year. As 2 Corinthians 9, 15 tells us, thank God for his indescribable gift. And let's finish by doing that. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we do thank you for your indescribable gift. We will never know the the depths. We can never plumb the full depths of your love toward us, which you showed by sending your son to die on that cross, to take our place, to make propitiation for our sins. And this is the love of God. We we know what we know. We know what's been revealed, what we can grasp with our our finite minds. But we pray you expand that that knowledge and that it turns into love, that turns into affection, appreciation, worship, that what we do know, we give thanks for. And that's enough to give us reason for praise for eternity, even what we do know already. So move us as we study your word and seek to know truth. Let it not just fill our minds, but travel down to our hearts, that to be overflowing with affection for the God who made us and saved us. And then even go to our hands, our feet, that we would live rightly, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that we would not despise our new birthright, but just live as you've called us to live. All to your glory. So we do give you thanks. We we, uh, consecrate this new year to you, resolved to serve you more and to know you more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.